Okay? Okay, great. So, this is a brain. <laughs> Looks a little gross, doesn't it? Three pounds of tofu-like tissue. Doesn't look like much, kind of gushy. But scientists consider it literally the most complex object in the universe. It's so complicated. There are about 500 trillion synapses in it. Uh, the number of potential combinations of each synapse, either in effect on or off, firing or not firing, uh, is uh, 10 to the millionth power. Uh, that's one followed by a million zeros. Number of potential states of this brain. Uh, to put that number in perspective, there are only 10 to the 80th power of particles in the entire universe. Electrons, protons, and all the rest of that in the entire universe. One followed by 80 zeros in the universe compared by one followed by a million zeros. Number of potential brain states, which is a uh, way to, uh, to, to get into uh, thinking about the number of possible thoughts, in a sense, that that brain can hold. All right, so why do, why do I care about the brain? Why do I suggest that we all care about the brain? That's because mental states become neural traits. The brain is the learning organ. It is continually affected by the thoughts, the feelings, the intentions, the memories, the hopes, the dreams, the suffering that flows through it. The nervous system stores, represents, and acts upon information of all kinds. That's its function. Immaterial information flows through the nervous system. That's what neuroscientists generally mean by the word mind, and that's how I'm going to use it here. Lowercase m, not capital M, cosmic mind. Most of the information stored in and operated upon and received by the nervous system is forever outside of awareness. We only register the tip of the iceberg that manifests somehow in the field of conscious experience. As I said in the beginning, how neural activity becomes conscious experience is a deep mystery, but there's no question that uh, neural activity is required for everyday conscious experience. If you change the brain in ways subtle and large, you change conscious experience. And the flow goes the other way. The movements of the mind leave lasting traces behind, temporarily in the moment and in really lasting ways. This is an image of an MRI shot. The resolution's not great up there. This is a slice like this of someone looking this way. It's a Tibetan monk in the act of sending boundless compassion to all beings, which in an MRI, claustrophobic, weird, and loud, bing, 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 you know, the magnets banging, uh, it's kind of, you need to concentrate. So, that little yellowish blob there is the anterior, which just means frontal, cingulate cortex, a part of the brain that's very involved in the top-down executive control of attention. When we engage mindfulness practices, uh, the epitome of which is formal meditation, uh, we are very much using the anterior cingulate cortex up to the point that we're effortlessly absorbed. The anterior cingulate cortex is involved in everyday tasks of focusing and bringing attention, whether it's fifth graders learning long division or keeping your head into a conversation with your partner who has a problem and it's starting to look like it's you, you know? <laughs> keeping your head in the game, even though you want to leave. Keeping your head in the game. All right. 
that's the anterior cingulate of the cortex. It's also where thinking and feeling is often is integrated. It's a key place where it's integrated, where we can bring heart to cool reason or, or sensibleness and rationality to the passions. Okay. Additionally, when we routinely activate a part of the brain, neurons that fire together wire together in the famous saying from neuroscience, and we actually build structures. The resolution on this slide is terrible. Uh, I'm gonna actually encourage Spirit Rock to upgrade the projector, but that's okay. So I'll just tell you what that is. So at least you can see the numbers, one, two, three. Those are parts of the brain. Uh, the number one region is the insula. There are two of them, there are two of most things in the brain. Uh, like the critters in Noah's Ark. There are two insulas, they're inside the temporal lobes. Uh, they're very, it's cortex, they're, it, the insula is very involved in what's called interoception. Do me a little favor, take a breath and notice that it's cool going in and warm going out. You probably sense the temperature differential, or maybe you felt your ribs from the inside out expanding and contracting. You engaged your insula to do that activity. Well, people who do mindfulness practice in this particular study compared to controls who did not have a long practice history of mindfulness meditation actually had thicker neural tissues in the region of the insula. They routinely tuned into their body. The insula is also very involved in tracking our gut feelings. It's very involved in self-awareness, including therapeutic practices that cultivate self-awareness, and as a bonus, the insula is really centrally involved in empathy for the emotions of others. So we get a double benefit, maybe a triple benefit, when we engage a mindfulness practice in which we're, for example, simply tracking the sensations of breathing and kind of aware of what else is arising in the mind at the time. Uh, that builds up our muscle, quote-unquote, for being empathic to the emotions of others. That's the number one region where meditators had measurably thicker cortical layers. Second region, the executive regions number two in the front of the brain, prefrontal cortex, linked to the anterior cingulate cortex that I just mentioned. Executive regions that do executive functions, top-down control, including control of attention and other forms of self-regulation. Long-time meditators, a lot of long-time meditators in this room, also built up cortical tissue in those regions. And then the third region, somatosensory cortex, at the top of the head, because they tuned into their bodies. I should add that it's not just meditators that build up cortical tissue. Uh, taxi cab drivers in London uh, have a thicker hippocampus, a part of the brain that's involved in visual spatial memory, at the end of their training to memorize the spaghetti snarl of streets in London than they had at the beginning of their training. And there are many other examples of where people build up cortical tissue through engaging mental activity. Mental states become neural traits, for better or for worse. Uh, another example of this is to take a look at the scatter plot at the bottom. This is where the blue circle people are being compared to the red square controls. And if you can't see in the back of the room, take my word for it. Normally we lose about 10,000 brain cells a day. That's a lot, but if you start with 1.1 trillion, that's only several percent lost by, let's say, the 80th birthday. That's called normal cortical thinning due to aging, which is associated with normal cognitive decline 
due to aging. Not Alzheimer's, not dementia, but for ordinary forgetfulness, problems with name finding as one ages, walking into a room and, having, and forgetting why one walked into the room, and having to go back to the other room to remember why did I walk into that room. Okay. All right, normal cortical thinning, normal cognitive decline. Well, take a look here or just believe me. As people get older, the controls had a decline in that area. Their cortices were thinner, measurably thinner, uh, in those three key regions. But the meditators, the blue circle people, did not experience cortical thinning in those regions. They did not have a declining curve over time. They used it so that they did not lose it. Right? And that has a lot of implications for everyday practice. They weren't perfect meditators. How many of you meditate at least one minute a month? <laughs> All right, so low bar, no more personal questions. Uh, let's, let's just leave it right there. These weren't perfect meditators. They were pretty dedicated, 20 minutes, 45 minutes, pretty routinely. Um, not perfect, and still, they built cortical layers. All right? This takes us to a key point. Uh, you know, things happen due to causes. That's the Buddha's fundamental framework. Processes and their causes. All right? So everything happens due to causes. Well, we live in a body. We are the body in a fundamental kind of way. We are embodied. And we enact, we engage life via the body. The basis of the mind, including the causes of suffering, are embodied. The Buddha did not know much about the body, he, and biology and neurology and the synapses in the brain. He didn't know anything about those things. The detail, if you will, of rupa, the realm of form, was not available 2,500 years ago. But these days, we scientists and culture in general, we knew a tremendous amount about form, materiality, rupa. And therefore, we can explore increasingly the causes of the causes. In other words, the Buddha engaged, as he said, I teach only one thing, suffering in its end. He really meant I, I teach the causes of suffering and the causes of the end of suffering. He knew those causes only as they arose, persisted, and passed away in the mind, in the realm of conscious experience. Increasingly, through modern science, we're able to answer the question, what are the causes of those causes? What are the underlying causes in form, in rupa, in materiality, of the causes of suffering and its end as they manifest in the mind? In the immaterial flows of information that constitute the mind, particularly those that uh, are uh, conscious experience. As causes, key causes to cultivate are resources factors that reduce uh, states of distress and dysfunction, suffering and harm, and increase wholesome factors uh, in the mind of happiness, generosity, compassion, equanimity, patience, forbearance, determination, resolution, insight, mindfulness, and so forth. How do we do that? When we realize that Building resources in the mind means installing them, one way or another, in the brain. To do this, I want to create a bit of a context here. Because a kind of technical error, in my view, has crept into uh, the 
Buddhist world and uh, the realm in psychology of mindfulness-related interventions and practices. It's crept into non-dual thinking. Uh, see if you think there, that there is a kind of error that's crept in. This is the error that I think, in other words. In other words, being with one's experience, particularly in an utterly accepting, receptive, non-interfering way, what's sometimes called choiceless awareness or open awareness, that stance toward the stream of consciousness is not itself mindfulness. It has become conflated with mindfulness. There are three great ways to engage the mind. We can be with what's there, including through choiceless awareness, where we just have a very presencing, um, receptive, non-interfering, non-fabricating orientation to the content of the mind, the contents of the, of the mind. Second, we can um, reduce negative factors or material in the mind. And third, we can increase what's positive. All right? In all three cases, whether we're letting be, letting go, or letting in, we can be mindful of what's going on. We can be mindful of the process or practice of letting be, choiceless awareness. We can be mindful of reducing the negative, that's half of wise effort in Buddhism. And we can be mindful of cultivation, of growing wholesome factors. To put it a certain kind of way, you know, as we be with the garden, we can be mindful of that. As we pull weeds, we can be mindful of that. And as we plant flowers, we can be mindful of that too. Right? Choiceless awareness itself is not enlightenment. As a state, it lacks other qualities of awakened heart and mind. And as a factor, it's insufficient. We need other factors as well including wise effort, which the Buddha allocated one of the eight elements of the Noble Eightfold Path to. Wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise view, wise livelihood, wise concentration are also necessary for full awakening. In effect, you know, to really, really simplify, and I'm going to bounce ahead and then bounce back, there are really three kind of phases to practice or aspects of practice. We want to know the mind. This is from, I always mispronounce his name, Niana Pingika Tara, something like that. Anyway, great teacher. Know the mind, shape the mind, free the mind. We know the mind through being with it and in general. We shape the mind. We shape the mind so we can know the mind and we need to know the shaping process. Okay. Those first two are essentially the two great wings of practice, being with and working with. I personally think being with is primary, because sometimes you just can't work with the mind. You can't pull weeds or plant flowers. You can't let go or let in. You're fried. You're overwhelmed. You're so upset. You're so plugged in. You're in such pain. You just... But at least you can find some place, some one-tenth of one percent of yourself that is observing that is aware of, that is being with what's there, that's holding it as a container in the wide open space of awareness. That said, being with is not enough. You know, sometimes being with is curative, right? We be with what's there, 
We just hold it in open awareness and it changes for the better. That's great. But often it doesn't. Often it's just the same, right? It's like the same pain, the same anger, the same fear. Uh, the same belief that if we exercise self-compassion, we'll sit on the couch forever, whatever. You know, it's the same stuff. At that point, we need to, um, you know, work with what's there, in my view. We need to be more engaged with what's there, in my view. Um, also, sometimes the truth is we're not yet resourced to be with what's there. Sometimes we ask ourselves or ask others just to tune into your feelings or what do you, what's your experience or you know, open up, and it's like popping a trapdoor to hell. We're not ready to do it. You know, as they say in AA, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go in alone. In other words, we need to bring resources with us, you know, including the felt sense of being cared about by others, uh, or other capacities, other, other resources. And also because of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, you know, this profoundly receptive quality of the brain. Uh, because the brain is the, uh, to, to, as the Buddha put it, the mind takes the, its shape from whatever it rests upon, for better or worse. The modern update would be the brain takes its shape from whatever we rest the mind upon, for better or worse. And if we're resting our mind on pain or, or anger or fear or, or, or feelings of inadequacy or other or beliefs that are problematic, whatever it is. And we're just simply being mindfulness, mindful of it or aware of it, if you will, past the point of what's useful. It's just like doing one more lap around the track in hell, digging in a little deeper every time. Because neurons that fire together wire together. You know, I think there's a place for really mining and really investigating and really being with the material. But past the point that's useful, I call it the Goldilocks spot where you're not getting any more value, you're not learning anymore, right? It just sucks, right? At that point, my view, it's okay to engage the wise effort dimension of the Noble Eightfold Path and pull some weeds as best you skillfully can and plant some flowers. Okay. At the end of the day, you know, ultimately we transcend what I've said so far. We free the mind. That was the last one up there. But interimly, we engage practices of cultivation, of pulling weeds and planting flowers in the garden of the mind. At the end of that journey, we, I think, transcend the whole system. We step out of the whole system. But along the way, if we're not yet there, we try to not make what John Wellwood calls the mistake of the spiritual bypass. We face the fact that our garden has some weeds and it could use some flowers. I'm a fan, by the way, of planting flowers. Flowers crowd out weeds and flowers prevent weeds from growing back. And in sometimes, flowers can actually uproot weeds and replace them with flowers if we engage practices skillfully. Okay. Any comment or question about this framework? And then we'll take a break. For me, this framework of asking yourself, what's most helpful for me right now? Being with what's here or releasing what's negative, and I mean by that pragmatically negative, that which causes suffering and harm for ourselves and others. Or third, what's more useful for me right now to receive or let in or to grow positive things 
pragmatically positive, that which creates um, happiness and benefit for ourselves and others. For me, this framework is very helpful to ask myself or to ask those I'm working with, what's, what's most useful for you right now? Okay. So a couple comment or qu comments or questions right there. Great question. Uh, she brings up uh, this idea that it helps to be aware of a state of mind and then let it become increasingly felt or embodied broadly. And that's exactly right. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. And she brings up, is that a way to heighten its neural traces? Is that a way to get it into the brain more? The total answer is yes. Um, after the break, I'll talk about the three fundamental steps of, in this kind of language, installing, frankly, uh, a positive experience into neural structure. In other words, how do we turn useful states of mind into enduring neural structure? How do we learn from often hard-won states of mind, given that we have a brain that's very inefficient at encoding positive states of mind into neural structure, while being very efficient, like Velcro, in effect, for registering negative states of mind. And so, yeah, the more we extend a positive state, not out of clinging or grasping, even though it's usually pleasant, but out of, you know, kind of skillfulness and um, self-interest, healthy self-interest, the more we extend it, the more we help it last, the more intense it is, the more embodied it is, the more that it's emotional and sensate rather than simply intellectual or conceptual, the more neural traces we're going to create for ourselves. And then also we can heighten the registration in the body, in, in you know, the structure building process through deliberately intending that uh, it sink in, that there's an absorbing of it. We prime memory systems when we do that. I think, honestly, it's been very humbling for me as a therapist and also a longtime meditator to appreciate how many hard-won uh, positive states of mind just flowed through my brain like water through a sieve, or through the brains, if you will, of my clients. From the standpoint of structure building, those hard-won positive experiences, those insights, those states of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.